This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. So first of all, you know, I, I do lead automated logic, our controls business. Um, you'll see this as a carrier slide, so that, that might be a head scratcher. So let me describe, this is why, I'm, don't worry, it's just one slide on what carrier is. Um, so Carrier was spun out as an independent public company from United Technologies about a year and a half ago. And what people may not know is that Carrier, in addition to having an HVAC business, which is the, the HVAC brand that you all know, we also have quite a significant security business, life safety, uh, building automation, and even refrigeration. A lot of work going on with you know, farm-to-fork activities as well. I lead the building automation column here. Uh, at Carrier Corporation, uh, including uh, leadership of our automated logic, uh, web control, building automation brands, and Abound, our new building IoT platform. So that's kind of where I fit in the scheme of things. Okay. So I, I kind of threw out, a, as I was kind of preparing for this, I thought I'd just kind of think about, you know, what's my premise here, right? And my premise is that People will return to the office. They will return to work um, because I think they're social. Uh, we want to, you know, work directly with people and so forth. And quite frankly, I'm in the building business. So I hope they come back. So I'm being a little optimistic. Um, but look, our perception of indoor spaces has clearly changed. Um, now, buildings have to compete with you know, your home, right? So most people would rather be at home in their slippers and go into an office. And so that's what buildings have to compete with. So they need to be attractive. Employees need a reason to go to the office. That means they need to be comfortable, healthy, engaging spaces. So there's competition. In a, you need to have a reason to bring people back or to get back to the office. And yet, of course, they have to be affordable, efficient, and sustainable. So those three pieces um, what will kind of be the balancing act that I'll talk, talk about more. Indoor environments matter more than ever. A lot of changing perceptions, as the speakers have talked about earlier, it's not just COVID. It's things like air quality, forest fires, climate activity. And we're starting to see that actually in surveys and so forth. And people are starting to say, you know, the occupants of buildings are starting to say that, their perception of the building actually matters, um, which is very important. I mean, it used to be not that long ago that the only time people cared about their building systems is when they're hot or cold, right? Which is, is kind of this triad, I call it here, around balancing among these three things. So this is the challenge today is finding this new balance because, again, Early days of the industry in HVAC is around having people be comfortable. Then when I started my career about 30 years ago in the industry, I've spent my career kind of in that energy and sustainability piece, right? And now it's really shifting to even a higher order set of needs, which is health and wellness. And they conflict, right? So I remember my very first job, internship, University of Wisconsin doing Department of Energy energy conservation grants, reviewing these things for schools and hospitals and stuff. And the first thing we would do when a 
ECM came through is we look and sure enough, they'd always cut the, the in, I'm sorry, the outdoor airflow like in half. That was like the first thing everybody did is cut the outdoor airflow, um, which obviously impacts health and wellness. And we learned that lesson, right? That saves energy. So finding that balance is going to be really critical. I'm going to spend a, a fair amount of my time talking about that lower right quadrant um, since you're already all experts on, on the rest of this stuff. Um, I'm going to draw from my, my talk quite a bit of material from Dr. Allen from the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, you know, you may be familiar with this work already. He wrote this book, Healthy Buildings. Um, I think it's pretty well known in the industry. And full disclosure, Carrier and, and our team has done quite a bit of partnership work with, with the school and with him on, on some of this research. You know, he does ask the compelling question, you know, why are we ignoring the 90%, which I find, you know, really interesting and compelling. The 90%, of course, being the amount of time we spend indoors. And, of course, we know why we've been ignoring it. You know, it's partly awareness. Um, if you don't think about it, it's not a big deal. And it's also economics, right? We talked about it earlier today. Several of the speakers talked about, you know, the energy efficiency piece versus the cost of people in the space. And our industry is really focused on the smallest percentage, which is the utility bill, rather than either the revenue generating income potential of the building, the salaries of the people, et cetera. Um, so those are... That's kind of what's behind it. Anyway, a lot of research in this area has been done in the last few years. It's really come of age. Um, the foundations of healthy buildings, um, this framework that uh, uh, that team came up with, I think is pretty consistent, consistent with frameworks either from well or fit well, reset others, you know, plus or minus one or two parameters. The concept is similar. You know, thinking about all the pieces in a building that that um, keep us healthy, right? Ventilation, air quality, et cetera. There's strategies around all of these. Um, but what I think is most interesting recently, and what I've been thinking about a lot, is a theme that runs across many of these, and that's air, right? This idea of discovering or rediscovering indoor air you know, and what it means for our industry. So let me talk a little bit more about that. I read this uh, newspaper article, and I'll dwell here a little bit so you can read it. This is actually originally from the New York Times. I actually read it in the Atlanta, Atlanta paper where I'm locally here. And when I read this, I was like, wow, things are changing, Right. A lot of different dimensions. First of all, as an engineer, I was like, wow, parents talking about CO2. CO2 is a pretty esoteric control concept. You know, remember all the battles we had about DCV and what, you know, what levels are right and so forth. Now parents are starting to speak the language. That was observation number one. You know, observation number two, this awareness around what it actually means, sending these things in with their children into school. You know, the next observation, you know, this other blue circle I did here, the technology implications. You know, this is possible because of technology. You know, these portable IAQ sensors for 100 bucks, I mean, they're a reality. You can get them on Amazon. So there's this technology slash IoT piece. 
which by the way, I think really illustrates, you know, implications to the building automation industry more generally, because our, you know, we're used to these static sensors, you know, you know, wired to a wall. But technology is at the point now where the human sensors in the building that are dynamic and moving and so forth had a lot of new interesting capabilities. And this is just one example. And then finally, the last box is sort of the wake up call for the industry. You know, it's possible that the school district may not be all that happy about this, right? Really? Okay. Um, I think it's because it gives us a window into the fact that they may not actually be treating ventilation very seriously, right? And as I read that, I was like, yeah, I, I'd hate to be that principal or that facility manager and so forth, getting those telephone calls. Um, so it's a little bit of a crazy time right now. And it's a scary time for facility managers, building owners, schools, and so forth. But one thing is clear, awareness is at, at an all-time high when it comes to you know, air quality in a building. So I'm going to talk just briefly about COVID response because this is very well documented. I, I like this letter. I pulled this letter as a public letter, December 22nd, from John Hopkins Center for Health uh, Security. A couple of highlights. Again, the other speakers have talked to it, but COVID is now known as primarily an airborne disease. You know, a call from the letter here and the writers of the letter, you know, efforts to protect children and staff in schools must focus on the air etc. Um, can be reduced by filtering and ventilating air. The good news is we know the engineering measures to take. Um, in fact, Daniel spoke to some of them earlier. Um, filtration, MERV 13 filters, six air changes per hour, etc., etc. HEPA filtration, upgrade heating, ventilation, air conditioning to bring in, I, I like this, bring in as much outdoor air as safely possible. Again, that's kind of at odds with traditional, you know, energy efficiency, you know, sequences, right? Now, the good news at the very bottom is there's actually money for schools to do some of this work. So it's a very interesting time, you know, in the industry. I think it's really kind of a once in a lifetime change to really upgrade a lot of these systems and make them, make them good. Okay. So let's move a little bit beyond COVID. And this is interesting because um, bef th this study was all done before COVID, by the way, about five years ago. This is not new. But what's happened is COVID has raised that awareness about air in public spaces. And I don't think that's going to go away. It's going to diminish, but it's not going to go away. But what it's done is brought to light some of these other factors that I think will remain post-COVID. And that is these things like cognitive function. And, you know, I invite you, there's this cognitive function website, CogFX study, it's, it's well publicized, where basically they did a double blind study, you know, of people in an indoor environment exposed to different levels of CO2 and, and VOCs and so forth. Um, and cognitive function, executive function was either double to three times better in an environment with better air. Simple as that. And the comparison was done in a conventional kind of code level system on the left versus kind of a maxed out, highly ventilated space on the right. 
and, and this, these are the kind of differences that were that were shown. Okay. And I'm going to get to a little bit around you know how do you mitigate the energy costs associated with it, and that's the trade-off piece. So I think to be successful here in this in this area, it's about what I call make the making the invisible visible. And you know, a lot of the discussion earlier, not a lot, but a fair amount. You know, I think Igor mentioned it. There's this idea of monitoring things and, you know, being armed with information and so forth. So let me talk a little bit about that. So traditional BMS systems that we know and love, you know, you've been kind of controlling buildings for a long time. Again, have focused on comfort and energy. You know, CO2 was there as sort of an artifact, you know, as really a proxy sensor for people for energy savings purposes not really as an, as an air quality sensor in most BMS systems. What we're seeing now is a move towards true continuous indoor air quality monitoring solutions. They're quite available. There's a number of manufacturers, number, number of solutions, um, but, and they're typically, the technology is typically, you know, wireless IAQ sensor into a wireless hub, you know, brought into the automation system or its own cloud in creating a, you know, a nice monitoring solution, including VOCs, particulate matter, and so forth, to create that full spectrum IAQ and wellness piece. Um, by the way, more sensing is always good in a BMS, you know, as a controls person, so we can actually control off of these things as well, uh, which is interesting. But once you have that in place, this idea of making the invisible visible, you know, as we've talked to customers, there's really two components, I think, that are very interesting. One is, again, the real-time continuous monitoring of the air um, informs decision-making. On the left, you see an example. This happens to be our abound platform. And on the right, and this is the controversial part. This is a very interesting part. Um, engaging and communicating to the occupants in the building to instill confidence. Um, just like the energy efficiency story and the conversations we had earlier about, you know, how do you communicate and, and so forth to make people aware of energy efficiency is even harder with air. So it's, it's obviously a, a difficult concept, but what we're seeing is people want to see something happening. You know, you'll see things like, you know, at the Delta counters, you'll see a sign. I think it's a big, they're partnered with Lysol, I think. So you'll see a Lysol sign. I saw that in some airports. You know, some signals when you walk into buildings that something is being done. So this, again, is an example of, of our platform. It happens to be the abound platform with kind of real-time dashboarding, um, you know, tied into, happens to be tied into sort of a well benchmark. Um, and then, you know, real life examples where, you know, we brought it to life. And this is an interesting one. Um, so the Braves asked us to put this in in their VIP suites. And so, again, remember early this year when the season started, people were very nervous about coming back into public spaces. And they used it as a way to give people a little more confidence that, this, that something was being done. Now, the good news is in this particular stadium, it's a relatively new stadium, um, and it's really well, probably over-engineered, you know, in terms of its mechanical abilities. 
Um, so it had plenty of error capability for filtration, you know, plenty of control points and so forth uh, to provide that environment. And then we just added sort of the monitoring piece. Another example was in a school. Um, and again, what was interesting here is by showing the data to people, people started asking questions about, oh, we didn't realize this is what the quality of our air was. Okay, so that's the air piece. But what about the trade-off with energy and sustainability? Because look, it costs money. It's, it's clear. We all know that if you go to a, you know, one of these crappy filters that don't do anything with basically no pressure drop to a MERV 13, there's an energy trade-off there, right? Um, same thing about being more outdoor air. So let me shift to sustainability. And look, you guys know all this stuff in the left, so I'm not going to reread that. But um, the good news is that we know how to reduce energy in spaces, right? So I don't, I really don't think this is a technology problem, you know, from a macro view, as much as an economic or willingness or whatever kind of impediment we can think of. So let me describe what's on the right. Again, this, this is uh, another study that's referenced down here where this looked at the impact, not only energy, but the co-benefits of energy reduction on lead sites. We kind of use lead sites as a proxy for efficient buildings, for lack of a better data source. So like Henley Hall, right? 40% energy savings lead platinum. Um, doing that analysis. And over this period of time, this was done in the U.S., I think U.S., China, Germany, um, Turkey, and India, just those six countries, um, saved about $7.5 billion in energy costs. At first, that sounded like a big number, but I started thinking about it. I was like, well, that's not really that much. But then I realized that's because that's the energy savings only documented in these LEED certified buildings, which is, I think it's less than 4% of our building stock in the U.S. So it's just kind of illustrative. And then what was interesting is they did the work to convert that energy costs into climate change impact, the carbon impact, and then also the health co-benefits of avoiding sulfur dioxide, particulate matter from power plants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they correlated that through the health team into, you know, reduced asthma attacks and sick days and so forth. So that's, that's how this was done. Anyway, what we do matters. We have an impact. And the good news is because of people like the folks on this phone and all of you, you know, we know how to save energy. So coming back to that COG-FX study um, earlier, where we talked about um, the benefits of healthy air, well, there's also a cost to bringing in more outdoor air, right? So just describing what this is, is we looked at three different uh, uh, outdoor air rates, 20, 28, and 40 CFM per person. And then we looked at two different systems, VAV systems and fan coil systems across seven climate zones, seven different U.S. cities. 
across a typical DOE standard office building and just modeled it and with an hourly analysis program. And then looked at on the right, yes, indeed, of course, costs went up, energy costs went up. But by adding energy recovery ventilators, which is very proven technology and becoming pretty ubiquitous, that impact dropped off, you know, quite dramatically. In most cities, it was basically, you know, de minimis. Now, even with the um, 14 to $40 a year per person per year, more energy, that's bad. But it does beg the question, you know, for, for people that own buildings and people trying to sell technology in the buildings, you know, what is the health of people worth, right? Um, you know, one app per person per year is probably like 14 bucks a year, right? So that's a way to think about it. But this is a hard sell. I'll, I'll tell you firsthand, you know, trying to convince people to do something and spend money for something that they view as, as in, intangible is very, very difficult. You know, what COVID did, though, is did open people's eyes so they're willing to at least have this conversation. Okay, so now I'm going to shift to controls a little bit under this context, because that's kind of my, my background at the moment. So, you know, control systems, you guys talked about this all day. Punchline is modern VMS systems. They're all great, um, you know, but people have to use them. They have to be simple to use and so forth, as, as other people have talked about today. In an integrated system can deliver, you know, I think the cake and everything else, right? Increase ventilation, monitoring the filtration, enhance control and so forth. Um, this is just an example of an air handler graphic here. I did want to call attention to this little box on the left. We call it the environmental index. Um, and there's a history behind this. And this, this is important getting into the simplicity piece. Um, that we talked about um, earlier. So a little bit of history, back in 2008, um, there's some work done with, at ASHRAE and, and articles written around, again, comfort versus um, energy efficiency, right? And how do you balance the two? And the cases were trying to be made around the value of people's salaries versus energy efficiency and so forth. So, we created what we call the environmental index, which is simply an index of, at that time it was quite simple. It was just simply um, temperature and humidity normalized. And you can take that index as a metric and a control point at the zone level, floor level, building level, campus level, et cetera, different roll-ups and so forth. To give energy managers a tool to compare against their energy use on the left, just basically trading two guardrails, you know, comfort versus efficiency and driving between those two guardrails. Just a very simple way to manage a building. And it was quite successful and, and, and effective. What's happened now in the last, last year or two is just that environmental index has just gotten more complicated, right? We just added a lot more things to it as sensing becomes available. We now, we now call it the flower petal uh, with many more components to it um, optionally. Um, so people can control a more broad, uh, you know, kind of perspective in their buildings. Um, guideline 36, big proponents of this, um, 
you guys are probably involved in this, some of you directly, but high performance sequences of operation, I, I think are very important. Um, and again, is an area that will help, I think, our industry have more standardized approaches. It's not just the technology, but the people that install it, configure it, et cetera. And, uh, you know, this is an area that I think has been or should be still early days a little bit, but should be a big success for the industry, um, including, you know, some kind of some basic FDD kind of built into it. So this is an example of, um, you know, work that's been done over a long period of time, starting in places um, in universities and so forth, but kind of getting to the point where it's now operationalized, commercialized at scale. So now, for example, all of our VAB controllers have guideline 36 basically implemented as standard out of the box, you know, and that's very different than the way things were just a few years ago, you know, along with dashboards and all that stuff that comes with it. Another area where I think controls are evolving in a very practical way um, is automated commissioning tools. So Igor talked about this earlier, but Commissioning tools are really important, I think, um, because buildings might work on day one, but starting on day two and day three, they start to you know, come apart. Um, if they're commissioned right on day one, by the way, which they often aren't. So this is just an example, again, of a standard commissioning tool slash auto commissioning tool where people, uh, when they set up their VAV systems, it's a classic approach. During unoccupied hours, it will auto-exercise all the valves, compare them to standards, you know, outputs, expected outputs, et cetera, and then kind of call a ball and if there's a problem or not and give that to the facility manager. Again, these are kind of things that should be expected. It's sort of, you know, essentially standard at this point. Again, um, just a few years ago, this stuff really was the exception, not the rule. And then the next thing I want to talk about is kind of I wrap up here is, you know, we've done a lot of work the last couple of years with multi-site portfolios. And I think these are really interesting because what I learned through this is that, um, you know, it's the service component is just as important or more important as the technology. And you'll see what I mean in a moment. So these multi-site customers, um, as you'd imagine, you know, they're, they're busy trying to do a lot of things, but they have to maintain their policies, compliance policies, temperature compliance, ventilation. Yes, they want to reduce energy because it hits their, their, their P&L. Um, and, you know, increasing comfort, increasing air impacts energy in a negative way. So they're always struggling with trying to find the balance. And by there's a number of mitigation steps that are pretty typical now, adaptive set points and schedules, you know, purge cycles, you know, to kind of clean up the air. That's sort of a new thing during COVID times and, and uh, dealing with wildfires. Advanced FDD now is pretty ubiquitous, cloud-based FDD systems. But the last piece is the piece I didn't appreciate until I started really digging into it. And that's this proactive system management. Okay, at scale. So people actually looking at the control system and acting on it and doing something with it. 
And I think that's something we often forget about. I forget about as a technology provider that if no one uses a system, then there's really no value in it. And there's, there's examples here. Big box retailers saving on energy and hitting their comfort goals. Uh, quick serve restaurants reducing truck rolls, saving significant energy. You know, another retail store we worked with, um, significant energy uh, reduction and better temperature compliance. So again, you can have your cake and eat it too. The technology is there. It's not rocket science, but it's effort, right? So let me describe kind of the classic model, not the classic model, but kind of the emerging model on how this works. Really, it's about connected assets. You know, and this is becoming quite common now. Remote connected assets and services, either through the BMS or independent of the BMS. A platform that provides technology insights. And again, I'm not promoting any. There's several different ones out there. You know, we have one we, we call IntelliSuite. There's other ones out there um, that help define what's the problem. Is it urgent? And how do I fix it? Oftentimes it stops there. The other key piece is an operations center, especially when you're trying to do this kind of work at scale to act on the insights. And I know the goal is, you know, autonomous and so forth, and we'll get there. But until we do, you know, having a way to actually act on the data, do something with it and dispatch trucks if and only if they're needed. So this allows you to batch service, you know, if you have multiple units in one building, if one's clearly bad, you can look at the other ones and predict it. If they're going to be bad, put the parts in the truck. I mean, this is real stuff and it's really happening. Okay. And by doing this type of a holistic approach, you know, people are able to actually save money and uh, improve comfort and, and so forth. You know, again, at scale with multi-site, it works pretty well. A little more complicated, I think, with each snowflake commercial building to do something like this. And, and I think that's where the challenge is, is really going to remain. So um, just to wrap everything up, because I know it's end of the day. Um, my last slide, I just wanted to kind of put something out there um, as an approach that we think about where you know we think a healthy, comfortable, and sustainable journey can all be done, right? Starting with some kind of assessment, energy assessments and, and air site assessments, you know, real-time monitoring to understand what's really going on. Commission balance, update the equipment, ideally continuous commissioning, and that can be done electronically. Optimize the control sequences. I didn't talk about things like chiller optimization and all that, because it's all well-documented, a lot of tools out there for that. Supplemental purification if it's needed. Monitor, improve, and act. And then this last piece is, I think, the coolest piece of all this is getting the occupants engaged in the building. Broadcast and inspire confidence in what we're doing. Right? Um, because then the people in the building know that something's being done, something about this building is different, the owners care, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the piece that's relatively new. And... Um, and by the way, it's a little interesting because facility managers don't necessarily like that, as you can imagine, right? Because it calls attention to the problems they have in the building 
and it forces action to happen. So anyway, with that, I'll wrap up and uh, happy to open it up for questions. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks, mate. Um, so this was really a, a, a great wrap up in the sense that it told us precisely where all the complexities that we have discussed during the day end up and who really needs to benefit from resolving those complexities, right? That's, that's the message that I took. And also an excellent view of where we are and what the pressures on the system, on our complete sort of ecology of, of, of people that are interested in this, uh, where they are. And it seems like the conclusion is we're at an interesting time from a variety of different, uh, from a variety of different perspectives. Um, I'll amuse you with the fact that we had an informational screen at what it, on campus at what is called the Student Resources Building way back in, I think, 2010. I don't think you visited this as a, at that time, but, uh, but we literally tried that and it had, uh, it had some success. People actually liked it. And so we did work with our facilities to, to, enable, to enable this. Uh, I, I don't think it's there anymore, but we should probably resurrect it at some point. But I think this informational aspect we spoke about several times uh, during the day, and, and, and it's, it's really important to kind of integrate everything. Um, any questions uh, for me from the panelists or the audience at this, at this point in time? I have a few, but... All right. I, I do want to comment on Daniel's presentation. I I, uh, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, at how quickly the tides have turned on renewable energy. I saw the curve and showing the the surplus at midday. I would have never expected that to have happened so quickly, relatively speaking. So that was very interesting. An idea of thermal storage, you know. Flipping the thermal storage story, I think I would have never expected that either. So that's that was very interesting, Daniel. Thanks for sharing that. So I, I wanted to ask you a question regarding literally the, the last couple of slides that you showed, which is it, it's showing us this, the state of affairs as is. So human insights are important. There is an operations center, all these different tools, you know, FDDs, commodity, Today, which it wasn't ten years ago, right. but it is, but it is today, and so it was interesting to watch that and be there. Um, there is, there are all these developments, and that's to us in academia is kind of a really important question. There are all these developments out there on the AI side, trying to impact this and many other industries by providing the aspects that some of that insight center or, or operation center is, is doing today and then minimizing the amount of time that people have to spend on even those higher tasks, mm -hmm. right? So really helping the building engineer, despite the fact that there are no PhDs that are implementing, right, the, 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 the process control. What's your view as to where that's at uh, in in the context of buildings and just the overall context of health, you know, energy. Yeah. Where, where do we stand? How many years? What, what's, yeah. what's the, what are the bounds? Yeah, I, I think um, 
here's the analogy I'd use would be interesting is, um, you know, cars, people have talked about self-driving cars, right. For some time. And that's going to be a ways off. Clearly there's all sorts of issues and so forth, but, but what is real right now is, you know, a car, I have a car now is two years old and it's got this driving aid, I'll call it. So like the wheel shakes when I go over the line or it kind of course corrects. Um, my sense is that's kind of where we are right now. There's the technologies that are there sort of um, that are real, that are certainly helping. Um, and I think there's some applications where they're certainly autonomously can do things on simple systems and so forth. Um, but I think um, this, I, I think kind of shooting for the moon, not from a technology standpoint, got to shoot for the moon from a technology standpoint to get there, but people's willingness to kind of turn over control to things, um, I think it would be some time other than sort of around the edges and around, around, uh, uh, no specific use cases. Any other uh, other questions or opinions on this on this particular issue? I have a question. Don't know if it's related, but I just wanted to play a devil's advocate with regard to the commercial building sector. So let's just assume that that these changes, hybrid work and working from home, persist, and that the commercial building sector shrinks in size. Is there a play for? the residential sector to bring some of the um, commercial technology we've created on, on the commercial side over to the residential side to improve things in that sphere? Do you see that from a business perspective? What do you think? That's really interesting. And I have maybe a contrarian perspective on that, which is I actually think it's easier in the home than in the building in the sense that, you know, the actual technology aside, I, again, I, I come from the, school of thought that the bigger problem is getting people to use it. And the beauty of a home sale is there's only one decision maker. Um, and so I, I think some of the technology actually can move a lot faster in the residential space than in the commercial space. Um, and we've seen that, you know, the, you know, when Nest came out, it was the yep. first kind of smart thermostat that was easy to use, picked up right away. Right. Um, and I think there's probably other areas that are right for that as well. You know, home, pur- home purification is one we're seeing now, which is really taking off. Um, uh, that won't take off nearly as fast in the commercial space. Um, and I'm sure there's other, other examples as well. But I mean, you have corporate responsibility, you know, kinds of motivations from the, from the business sector, right? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Here's one thing that's that was always interesting to me because I I, I grew up uh, with a father-in-law who is actually a, well he was a professor and then and then a buildings engineer and you know when when he visited a number of times uh, what was most interesting to him that he always designed systems air conditioning systems with humidifiers and what was interesting to him is that it's almost non-existent. <laughs> I mean, in most systems that we have. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is that there was repeated um, suggestions, you know, by NIH, CDC, um, people, people that, that are in the know on the health aspects of this, 
that in fact humidifying air is is a health issue and a and a pretty seriously interesting one. So interestingly, and I don't know exactly how in Europe these days those issues are handled. Maybe it all turned to you know no use of humidifiers because of course they use energy, and so it's an energy efficiency issue. Um, but do you see that coming back? It's a bit of a practical question with with these health pressures. It's not only CO two, right? It's, it's yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I look at it. People are talking about humidity in the commercial space for the first time since, I mean, adding humidity for the first time that I can remember in my career, to your point. But I haven't seen many people talking about really driving, adding humidity to the space. I haven't heard a lot of that. So. I've worked on some buildings where that was considered. My recommendation always was that um, because of uh, condensation bill issues in the building envelope, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, basically when the humidification was most needed, which was on the coldest day, you really needed to turn it off. And, you know, the health benefit might, might apply to 90% of the time. But uh, if you use the humidification in um, uh, that other 5% of the time, stuff would get wet. And when stuff gets wet, things grow. And when things grow, it's never good for anybody. I agree that it's a very serious maintenance issue. That, that I agree with. But... Uh... If you listen to CDC and NIH, again, to be to be slightly contrarian and, and, and spice up the discussion, you know, probably much of the sick building syndrome that, that Joseph Allen, you know, so so eloquently uh, describes is there are aspects of it that are related to not enough humid, you know, not, not enough humid air in the building. And so the health aspect in some sense. I know it's invisible, but the health aspect could potentially be driving this. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, whether that's something that that we should pay attention, pay attention to. Who knows? We we, we shall see. <laughs> whether that becomes whether that becomes an item. Um, any any other topics, questions that uh, that may maybe missed during the day? And didn't discuss, although we had a very wide-ranging discussion on 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 these these topics. Anything else that comes to mind? I just had a Scott said something in the chat here. I just kind of build on what he said uh, or asked. Um, is commissioning enough to accomplish you know better control? You know, probably not. But I, I think this idea of more continuous commissioning is impactful. Um, Clearly, very clearly. Um, and I think the way to do that and make it more applicable or more used by more people is to make it more ubiquitous, which means making it easy. And quite frankly, you know, basic retro commissioning or continuous commissioning in FDD, basically it's standard tools in the toolbox, uh, which is starting to starting to happen in commercial buildings. You know, for new, new systems typically have those as a standard. Component. Why do you think this didn't happen yet. I mean, I, I remember 15 years ago, I, I believe there was a school in Texas that even trademarked uh, continuous commissioning. Uh, there, there was really a movement 
what what does the this is the question for everybody <laughs> why why didn't it happen what what do you think of the core reason it's the nature of the industry it's so fragmented who owns the commissioning service who benefits from it who who does it cost uh, you know often installation wants to be done as quickly as possible and the commissioning process can slow that down and that, that's a different business than the operations business and they're often disconnected from each other so i think it's just a, a symptom of the fragmentation of the industry also that's not been embraced any other and i hate to say it but i can a lot of these areas i think most people aren't aware and they don't care you know? <laughs> with energy efficiency and everything i mean you know i i'm in an office building it's a, it's a suburban office complex um and you know i care so i ask a lot of questions but if it wasn't if we weren't in the controls business um our facility manager and again it's a typical model we use a third-party facility term like many people do and you know, because the occupants, they don't ask. And if they don't ask, what gets worked on is just keeping the thing running. Mm. And, and that's what happens. And, and and that's why I'm really intrigued by, again, making more information available to people um, at the occupant level. So it was, if it was completely automatized, which is maybe where the, where the, where the bottleneck was, it was, if it was completely automatized and really provided information, accurate information, accurate actionable information right. that could be implemented with with you know little right. uh, uh, human like human would have to be involved but not tremendously maybe even changes in the control system itself right yeah. uh, direct writing then it could potentially now happen and like, yeah i'm, I'm th there are technologies that are emerging from a variety of institutions, uh, commercial and academic, that, that are starting to enable this. That's, that's a very, very, very good point. Um, uh, anybody on, a, on another topic of discussion? All right. Well, we had a, a, a very interesting day. I have a few conclusions um, that, that I was writing down as a, as a summary of, I think, what, what a number of speakers have talked about. So I'll, I'll read them. Um, I can even, let's see if I can share. Can you see my screen? Yes. yes. Uh, so here are a couple of things that I've been thinking about, uh, or rather, so it, it seems that there is an agreement that there is some pressure uh, for change due to closer attention to IQ. I, I think a, a few people have argued that, uh, a few speakers have argued that. Um, there seems to be one big issue in, uh, in bringing technologies to market, and that's the investment cycle, whatever, Whatever we can do on this side, on the research side, and then later on the development side, there needs to be a cycle or, or better understanding of what the risk is, better prediction, better, better monitoring. And then a, a few people have definitely talked about 
the need for monitoring actually we concluded with with a, a pretty strong pitch for monitoring everything at all time and continuously commissioning everything, which, which I also think is the right thing to do. Um, one thing for us in academia and, and labs that's that's important, and, uh, and Tim, Tim's group and, and Marianne's group are certainly working on this. Uh, some of us are also working on this in academia, multi-objective optimization. These methodologies are not simple. This is, the, the problem is just to, you know, perspective, right? We're talking, if we're talking about a, a, a decent sized commercial buildings, one can have 10,000 parameters that are governing the, that are governing the dynamics, uh, you know, starting from thickness of the walls and the resulting heat coefficients and so on and so forth to, to windows and others. So these are not easy problems. When you add the grid to it, uh, when you add the health aspects to it, it, it becomes uh, a, 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 a serious need of development of modern technologies. And then I had need for integration of design and control for comfort, energy, and IQ, which is driven by these pressures. And then also integration of subsystems that is both a challenge and an opportunity, of course. if uh, it, It's a challenge because they very often don't talk to each other um, or, or might not talk to each other. Um, now that's especially true in the residential in the residential context, but it's an opportunity because when we couple them like combined heat and power, we can actually get more out of the combined system than, than what we're getting from individual systems. I'll send this text around uh, to everyone, and then if people had comments, please tell them either now or we can exchange a little bit more by email if you're willing to uh, continue this discussion a little bit. Might be of some interest uh, to uh, to come to some joint conclusions as to maybe the top shelf needs are, um, as we can that. So any immediate comments to this? I have two things in chat. Um, so I'll, I'll look at that, all right. If not, I'm going to stop sharing and then take a look at the chat. Oh. There we go. So uh, with that, I think we're going to conclude. Um, I'd really like to thank everyone, both uh, the speakers, the panelists, uh, the participants. I, I thought certainly I have learned a lot. I have, I have certainly learned where we stand, uh, what the perspectives are, not only from various deep technical contexts, but also integration along different verticals which was quite important because without understanding where the impact is, I don't think we can um, be extremely effective on the, on, the, on the research side. Understanding impact is, is, is very, very important as we develop these things. So I, I really want to thank you. And I hope that sometimes in the future and hopefully close future, we're going to meet at this building uh, that is behind several of us and Mark is in it. <laughs> uh, 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 at least his background is is inside the building. I think. So thank you again. Uh, have a great rest of your day, and hope to see you all soon in person. Thank you, Igor. Thank you, Igor. Thank you. Well done, everyone. Thank you. Very useful day, thanks, Igor. Thanks, Manush. Thanks, everybody. Yes. Thanks for organizing. Thank you. Thank you for enabling and participating. All right. See. You. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.